I'm Leonard Lopate. When our favorite language experts, the brother and sister team of Catherine and Ross Petrus, visit the show, it's usually to talk about word usage and grammar. And we'll be doing that later in this show, but their latest book is a departure from all of that. It has the intriguing title, A History of the World Through Body Parts, the stories behind the organs, appendages, digits, and the like attached to or detached from famous bodies. And so to start us off today, I thought we'd talk a little bit about how they came to take on this unusual project, which is published by Chronicle Books. Later on, as always, we will be taking calls. So if you have any questions about word usage, grammar, or pronunciation, write this number down now and uh, give us a call a little later. It's 212-209-2877. Uh, Kathy and Ross, it's always a pleasure to welcome you back to our show. And it's, and always, it's always a pleasure to be here. Oh, we said it at the same time, Ross. I know, we always do. The problem is we're quasi-twins in a way. <laughs> Ross, uh, I, you're something of a history buff, aren't you? Was there a particular story or a few of them that got you thinking about doing a whole book on this subject? You've got it. I'm a history buff, and both of us are word buffs. And there was a quote. Actually, we were doing, I forgot what we were doing. We also do quote books, and we found a quote by uh, Pascal, which went, Cleopatra's nose, had it been shorter, the whole face of the world would have been changed. And that got us thinking about people's noses, specifically Cleopatra's. (laughs) Why not, right? (laughs) So why uh, was the length of Cleopatra's nose so important, Kathy? Uh, How long, do we know how long it really was? We don't. And that's the thing that's fascinating. We're not really sure what Cleopatra's nose looked like ultimately. I mean, it's not like nowadays, although now you can Photoshop things. So we probably wouldn't be sure now either. But in a weird way, Cleopatra was kind of the George Santos of noses. <laughs> was she, was she the one who was bragging about her nose or were other people? Well, here's the interesting thing. Her nose, depending on which type of media you look at and where, her nose changed size. Mm. In Egypt at the time, ancient Egypt, which seemed to like little noses, and you look at, you know, tomb or, you know, temple pictures or temple carvings, her nose is small. Then when you get nearer to Rome, like when she was having her her fling with Caesar and then with Mark Antony, her nose gets longer and larger. Mm. And in the quote that we just talked about basically indicates her nose was better longer because her nose longer was sort of like Caesar's nose and the Roman aristocrat's nose. More Romans Italian. liked big noses. Yes. Now, so uh, she changed her nose. Kathy, does this book include the kinds of stories that don't make it into more traditional history books? Certainly not into high school history books. Uh, well, yes. So, you know, we, we cover a lot of body parts, some of which are a little more, you know, Snazzy, if you will. We we covered uh, breasts, for example. There is a ancient um, Vietnamese uh, warrior that legendary slash historical. They're really not sure. She does appear in certain um, Vietnamese texts, but she was said to have breasts that were 
over three feet long and she would fling them over the shoulders or knot them behind her back when she went into battle. Wow. Uh, both Ross and I suspect this is a little enhanced, yeah. if you will. It's <laughs> a wonder bra action happening here. I don't, I don't think they were really that long. I don't think so either. Uh, your book spans just about the entire history of humans on Earth from Paleolithic times to the Space Age. Um, were these anecdotes you've been collecting for years? Well, kind of on and off. I mean, we do. some of them go back to when we were kids. In Greece, for example, we talk about um, various body parts of males and uh, the sizes, <laughs> which I, I remember as a kid. Or I, lack of size, Ross, yeah. or lack of size. And was that important to, the, to the, the, the stories of these people? If they were small, did that mean that they were less respected? No, it actually meant the opposite. Hmm. Greeks were really big. We have a we mentioned the word sophrosune, which means basically, I guess, kind of like taking the middle way, being cultured, etc. And the idea was that um, it's better to be smaller because that shows that you're you're basically a, a gentleman of 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 leisure, but a gentleman who's fine and, mm, and you're good restrained. Be. You're restrained and refined as opposed to sort of yes. priapically like rah, rah, you know You're not I mean? gonna be driven by your sexual desires. Precisely. You but put that it was, better than I <laughs> well But that was the interesting thing about the book though, because body parts were unexpected and they cropped up in unexpected ways. We had Caesar's we had uh, you know Cleopatra's nose the better the longer, etc. Well there were other cases like you, you talk about the Egyptian pharaohs and why they wore fake beards, and you, you focus on Queen Hatshepsut, who took the throne in 1478 BCE. Uh, first of all, was she the only female pharaoh? No, there were several others, but she's by far the most famous. The Egyptians were not amazingly uh, gender—basically, uh, it was better to be a male— and in Hatshepsut's case, she basically changed again. We go back to the how the people change things in her tomb. She gradually became more and more male looking as time went on because she was trying to morph herself into, in effect, into kind of a publicly male figure. That's what I was going to say. The key is public in this case, because mm. the fascinating thing we found with that is Hatshepsut her masculinization was not a personal thing. It wasn't like she felt, she identified, she gender identified as a male. As, as a ruler, the male aspect was more impressive. It was a symbol of power. That on. It was a symbol yes. of mm -hmm. power in Egypt at the time. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Well, talking about power, we've assumed from Shakespeare's play that King Richard III's back was deformed. Was he a hunchback, a humpback? That was a fun one because there had been um, when we were working on it that 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 they found that skeleton in the parking lot in that London. they believe was Richard the mm Third, -hmm. and and the more research they did, they think he did have scoliosis that there was a twisted in his spine, but he was certainly not quote a lump of foul deformity as uh, Shakespeare put. And um, we go back to, again, how history is written by the victors. And in the case of Richard, because he ended up losing, the, the history that was written thereafter by the Tudors makes him look like really bad. Richard is a monster. Tudors are great. York's bad. Tudors good. So you make Richard into a monster. 
and they believe that there's some validity. I mean, in, as I said, the scoliosis. However, so that would have meant he was bent like over. Shakespeare. That he, me? It meant he would have been bent over, which is not the same thing. No, yeah, not at all the same. Yeah, actually, you're right, Ross. Go. Not necessarily, because scoliosis is like a slight twist in the, in the back. And many people have scoliosis and you you can't really tell. Uh-huh. And there is some question if we could have even told that he had any sort of any sort of problem with his back at all. Another myth you debunk concerns George Washington's false teeth. Did he actually wear wooden dentures or did he have something more sophisticated? <laughs> well, he certainly wore teeth that were not his. We know that much. The set, the thing with that is it could have been we always talk about the wooden teeth and like, you know, oh, he like has that that face in all the famous paintings because the splinters or whatever. They actually, though, did find um, in the uh, Mount Vernon ledger books that they paid for uh, teeth from uh, enslaved people that were at Mount Vernon. And that was a very common thing at the time. Hmm. So the thought is now that it's very possible that they were indeed human teeth, just not his own original teeth, and ones that he had ostensibly bought from the enslaved people on his uh, plantation, which means that he got the money back as the owner. So, you know, <laughs> it's it's a... It's an ugly little thing. (laughs) You write about Harriet Tubman, who suffered a brain injury as a young girl. How was that injury partly responsible for her becoming an anti-slavery activist? Well, this was interesting. I mean, it's hard to basically go back into time and to assign motivations. And she seems to have been an extremely strong person who had definite ideas and opinions. But when she was a young child, she was trying to defend another slave, which again, another enslaved person, which again shows that type of mentality. And she was hit on the head really badly. And after that, she said that she began to have visions and the visions basically helped her go through and uh, avoid avoid slave. When she tried to escape, it helped her avoid uh people trying to chase her, et cetera. And it gave her, she sort of like felt like as a sixth sense, an ability to avoid, uh, and she became famous for helping slaves, enslaved people escape from um, the slaveholding states. Another interesting case concerns Mary Mallon, better known as Typhoid Mary, and her gallbladder. How did her gallbladder turn her into <laughs> one of the most infamous disease carriers of all time? It really is remarkable, isn't it? This is, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a quick like tangent. That's what, we had so much fun doing this because we never thought about like gallbladders and what they did about like, you know, how to, at this time, it was when COVID was beginning, and yeah. Mary Mallon's gallbladder was like so much in today's, in, in at the time today's world, in terms of contact, uh, excuse me, contract tracing, which was contact just uncanny. Tracing. Yeah, I, was, I said contract. Yeah, sorry. But the weirdest thing about Mary Mary Mallon's gallbladder, and it really got us, was first of all, neither of us ever think of gallbladders in a normal situation. But and then gallbladder stones, the little rocks that go in, that form from uh, excess uh, minerals when you eat, basically the bacteria gets stuck sort of like a plaque like on your teeth. And what Mary Mallon was doing, she didn't have any symptoms, but the little plaque on her gallbladder stones would kind of like shoot out the uh, the bacteria and other people would get it. The gross part about it was she was apparently cutting peaches 
is and she gave it to her. She was, she a, was cook. a cook. We've got to say, yeah. yeah. But the, but the, it was discovered that she did not wash very well because you basically don't get it unless you don't wash. You're not going to. She's not going to transmit it unless she doesn't wash her hands very well. And she gave it to a lot of people. But the most interesting part about it to us was that even back then, they knew that there were asymptomatic uh, bearers of various diseases, not only uh, typhus, typhoid, etc. And they knew, and there were there were literally thousands of people walking around the U.S. shedding off disease. And we had the same problem now. How do you balance, uh, you know, putting people away, or what do you do? Yeah, in that case, she was put in an isolation cottage. Um, mm -hmm. near the East River, which is, you know, pretty grim. And she also, it's not, we're not sure if it's true or not, but there were um, accounts where she enlisted a boyfriend's feces to like prove she was fine she and was she could not, be released. Yeah. So we, we, we've heard about that recently as well. So it's interesting that the more things change, the more they remain the same, if you will. Body parts of some famous people were removed after their deaths, like Anne Boleyn's heart and Einstein's brain. Was removing a person's heart before burial a common practice in Anne Boleyn's time? Actually, it was more common before her time, um, which it, during the Crusades was when it really sort of became the end thing. Uh, if you were part of it was because you were uh, uh, overseas, you're in the quote, uh, you know, biblical area, the old lands and stuff. It's hot. You die there, you're going to rot, to be blunt. But you wanted to have your body brought back to your homeland, mainly England, and be buried in like the crypt in the local church or whatever. So they realized the thing to do was to remove body parts, namely the heart in particular, so they could be buried back in England. You could bring that back cleanly. The rest of the body could be left. So it became the in thing, if you will, in the upper classes to um, – mm -hmm. Take little parts of you and bury it in different places, if you will. Heart being the main one. But what about Einstein? Was it simply because they wondered whether his brain was different than other people's brains and wanted to study it? That was the principal idea behind Einstein. And I mean, frankly, it's still unproven. Was his brain physically different? that made him so much smarter? We don't really still know. They took slides of it. And Kathy, didn't you find something about the difference? They had more connections, synaptic connections, I believe. Yeah, there's, they think that, um, actually the thing that was fascinating, his brain was actually smaller than average. But it but had more connections. Parts of his brain, like they said, I think it was the, I, I'm not, I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation because I'm no biologist, but it's the parietal lobes. Is that would that be it? Right. Yeah, um, were larger, and they found that there was a higher ratio of certain cells to neurons, and there were more connections between those cells. So they thought that he could make like leaps between like ideas more readily than the average person. That said, though, I want to say that the brain was taken by um, after he died by the doctor who who then talked to the family and said, is it okay, we want to study this. And I love, they couldn't figure out what happened to his brain many years later, because the guy who took it, they didn't, he, nothing ever happened. He, he couldn't get people interested. And a reporter from New Jersey, I just love this, New Jersey Monthly tracked it down, tracked down Einstein's brain. It was in Wichita, Kansas, in a, in a carton, there were two jars, two mason jars, and the reporter wrote, I just adored this, Floating inside were several pieces of matter, a conch shell-shaped sized chunk of grayish-lined <laughs> substance. Hmm. 
dozens of rectangular translucent blocks the size of Goldenberg's peanut shoes. And that's that's Einstein's brain. I mean, it just amazed me how how tactile that is. You know, there are many more stories in this book, like uh, the one involving Frida Kahlo's spine, for example. I should mention that it's beautifully designed. And like all of your books, it's a wonderful object. Um, but uh, we want to move on to the language segment part of our show. Meanwhile, uh, let me uh, tell our audience that my guests are uh, Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus. Uh, the book we've been discussing is A History of the World Through Body Parts, the stories behind the organs, appendages, digits, and the like attached to or detached from famous bodies, published by Chronicle Books. Excuse me while I cough. Mm. <laughs> this is, well, maybe we want to talk about clearing your throat. That's a whole other issue. Uh, <laughs> well, there's the esophagus there, the body part there you've got. This is, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Listeners, if you have any questions on word usage, grammar, or pronunciation for Kathy and Ross, you can give us a call at 212-209-2877. Well, uh, since we've been talking about body parts, I'm wondering about some of the obscure words of body parts that most people don't know. For example, do you know what the supercilium is? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the eyebrow reason. Is. <laughs> the it's yeah, the eyebrow. eyebrow reason. I don't know yeah. why it has to be called the supercilium, but... Well, uh, what, I, I can be really boring and tell you it, it comes from the Latin. <laughs> Go ahead. It comes from the Latin that it's a, a ridge or a, the top of a of a, of a hill. Uh, so Ross, as our local Latin expert, is that where supercilious comes from as well? Yes, supercilious. So it's lofty. like you're raising your eyebrow. Well, it's lofty with pride. Yes. Ah, interesting. Mm. Yes, and then the back of the knee is called. The popliteal space is that also Latin? Uh oh, I don't. I, that, well, you've got me. I'm looking at, as we speak. I'm looking it up now to see what the word is. Popliteal. That, that one, for some reason, I think I know, and I don't know why I knew that from some book. Uh huh. So you're also, talking about popliteal. You're saying popliteal. I just mispronounced it. Yes. Oh, okay. Popliteal is um, is from popliteus in Latin. <laughs> which would be, um, I guess, flat. So popless in Latin is the ham of a leg. So I'm sort of, conf I don't know, it's flat. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm seeing it comes from the classical Latin poplitz knee joint, back of knee. That would be popliteus. Yeah. Popliteus musculus. It's well, well, I don't know. Super silly. Musculus sounds like a like a Roman general or something, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like a gladiator, doesn't it? Have you ever heard the word fizz, P-H-I-Z, used to mean face? I'm assuming yeah, it's connected to physiotherapy. <laughs> yes, we That's use it all the time. We really? do. What's what's the matter? What why, why do you have that look on your fizz? We do. <laughs> Many of us have heard the word philtrum, which is that groove in your upper lip. But do you know what the oxter is? Uh-oh. He's getting us here. I don't He's know. He's like stopping us, Ross. I'm counting I'm on sorry, you. You know I'm Latin, sorry. I don't. <laughs> That's your armpit. <laughs> really? 
Yeah, why not just call it an armpit? I guess Oxter. I, sometimes I, I think words are were invented to, to um, separate the so-called experts from the rest of us. Well, the, uh, ox, uh, oxter. I'm going to start using uh, that though now. Armpit. I'm going to be the ones that I'm going to be the wheat, not the chaff. And the hallux <laughs> is the big toe. Anyway, if you have any questions about body parts or any other language questions for Kathy and Ross, we invite your calls at. Uh, 212-209-2877. And, uh, well, should we, uh, do you have any things you want to talk about? Well, actually, I'm just looked up Oxter right now as as you were talking. And that is really interesting. It comes from the Old English, Uh Oxter, it says here. Which I never, I, this is interesting because I never, I don't think, Kathy, you do, I never heard the word before in my life until right now. Did you? No, I have not. No, I have not. I, would, I could lie and say, of course I knew it. Of course. No, never heard of it. But I do agree with Leonard to some degree on why do we use obscure terms for, I mean, whenever you look at like a, a medical journal, you'll hear, you'll hear all sorts of Latin terms. Mm. I think it is done. It was done to separate the professional physician from the rest of us, I think, mm. to some, it becomes sort of a jargon. Well, which we I think you're, about. we've talked about jargon, you and I, a lot of times, Ross, and it's true. I mean, a lot of times professional jargon, in fairness, I, I think it sounds to me a lot of times like people are being somewhat hoity-toity. But in fairness, I believe a lot of times just that that's what you've used and that's what you use and, and you continue to, you know? Well, a lot of the these words, I haven't heard them. For example, uh, a hallux for a big toe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thrapple, well, that, meaning the throat or a windpipe. Wow. Yeah. Though, again, a lot of these terms came from, hallux came from the Latin. And a lot of these terms do come from Latin. And I I mean, there's probably an historical reason, too. In the old, you know, in the 16 or 1700s, the presumption would be that if you were educated, you would learn Latin. And I guess that. The presumption also would be that you want a technical term for what you're doing. So I guess you that you can cross countries or cross boundaries. So I guess you would choose Latin as the lingua franca, so to speak. I'm going to I'm going to pick up thrapple right now, which I just looked up while we were speaking in the OED. And and it's it's uncertain where it came from. It, it's primarily now it's Scottish, Irish, English and, and Northern right. English. But the funny, so I'm assuming it's probably uh, from some sort of uh, English source, you know, Saxon or something, I'm assuming. Mm. But why would we lose that? They're saying that they think it, com- it became throttle later on. But mm-hmm. it's it, to me, that it, why we had thrapple and now it became throat or windpipe. Well, it's and near it's the Adam's apple. Odd... Thrapple. Oh, <laughs> I like that, Leonard. <laughs> Yes, there's a famous Charlie Parker song, Thrapple from the Apple. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you uh, have been observing changes in the language and pronunciations over the last year. Do you want to talk about some of the ones that really stick out for you before we take any listener calls? And a reminder that if you have any questions, our listeners, about body, about anything that involves language, we invite you to give Kathy and Ross a call. The number 212-209-2877. Kathy? 
Uh, one thing, Ross and I recently had to, um, had to, we, we released the audio versions of all the, our word books and Ross and I had to do the recordings of them, which was quite illuminating for us. And in so doing, we reread the books, I mean, out loud. And the one that struck me the most, and this is from, um, uh, that doesn't mean what you think it means, was the word prodigal, because it's used really often nowadays but we think the meaning has gotten sort of diffused over time and 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 it's lost its initial thrust ross yeah uh, yeah prodigal used to have a negative connotation the prodigal son returns the prodigal was basically a bad guy now we have like examples of obama returning to kenya or going to kenya the prodigal son returns to the homeland, the Biden going back to Delaware, the prodigal son returns, where it's become basically just a term meaning you traveled a long way and you've come back. And as an example, basically, of, of words losing or gaining, we call it amelioration or pejoration. Amelioration, when a word gets better, which is what happened with prodigal, pejoration is when a word becomes... Word gets worse. Yeah. So we've been really observing that. But on my case... Though I've been noticing new words coming up that it, it gets me sometimes I forget that I never heard them before. I metaverse, for example, virtue signaling, of hmm. uh, green. But those are those are new words. Those are new those words. Are, okay, those are but what about a word like Trump? Will it ever be the same? I think you're right about that. It's funny. That's a good point because I used to say like blah blah, blah Trump's that, and and you? now you kind of cringe, don't you, when yeah. you say it? I mean, you can't help it. And I don't know that it's going to regain its its former sort of pleasant, normal like oh that beats. No, I think I think Trump is is a word that's going to be tainted for quite a while. Actually, let's go to some calls. Bai, you're on the air. Yes, is that me? You. Yes, hello, Leonard. Love the show, and I'm enjoying this one very much. Maybe you can answer this question from my way back when at Seton Hall Prep, Father Cotter, the great, great <laughs> Greek and Latin professor who, who taught us in, in prep school. He always wondered, excelsior in Latin means higher. And why do they call the packing material excelsior? Oh, that is you. very interesting. It, well, it was a trade name initially. It was a brand name, wasn't it? I believe yes. it was. I've got to. I've got to check this now. Yeah, which is. I, I, yes, no, Ross, I'm sorry. No, I think it was. Yes, it's wood wool. Excelsior is wood wool. Uh -huh. but, well, it's uh, wood shavings. You know, it's those curls. Yeah, I don't. I'm trying to. I'm, yeah, it was okay. I'm looking. I'm. I'm looking now. I, I'm not doing this off the top of my head. I'm not as smart as I would like to be. Yeah, it was a trade name for that. So I'm assuming that some businessman just liked the name Excelsior okay. and and applied it to his machine that made the little shavings to fill mattresses. Okay. The question: Why do trade names? become generic names what and what do you call not, not why but what would you call that term when it when a trade name becomes a generic name generification which generification. is basically yeah it, it's obvious right when you think about it yeah it's when you have like something like um well some of them it doesn't happen like xerox we used to use xeroxing even though technically we weren't supposed to but generification is when something that began as a brand name or trade name 
becomes part of the language and to the point where it's no longer trademark and 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 that's it it's fair game for all of us to use and the danger is a lot of companies will publish uh the name of their brand with a little trademark sign around it in journals for writers just to make sure you try to use that because they want to make sure it doesn't get into general use like xerox did or whatever for a long time or kleenex tissue and kleenex people used to say too gosh we're getting old though because i i can't even i've said xerox at the library and the person looks at me like yeah what? like what's xeroxing really <laughs> how old was that person Oh, I think it was, it was at the university, a 22 year old uh -huh. or something like that. She had no idea what I was saying. I said, Oh, I mean, photocop. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, even that no one does anymore. <laughs> well, um, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither. Let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, and I like. We're back tomato. with Catherine and Ross Petrus. Uh, we have been talking about. Well, we first we talked about uh, one of their new books, A History of the World Through Body Parts, but uh, we often talk about language with them, and uh, they've written a number of books on language, including Awkward, spelled A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. Uh, also, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means, and You're Saying It Wrong, all published by 10-Speed Press, before we get back to them, you probably have uh, been hearing that WBAI has been going through a rough uh, time economically. So um, I'm uh, going to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting us uh, during this, these, these rough moments. Um, how about becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy? And if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more, or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949, culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. It, it, it covers some of the most interesting stories um, involving women over uh, the history of, uh, well, the United States. Uh, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950. Or you can also go online to women.wbai.org. That's women.wbai.org. Uh, and become a BAI buddy with Low Pit at Large as your favorite show. So give us that call, 212-209-2950, or go to women.wbai.org. And we return now to Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus, and we are taking your calls about language at 212-209-2877. Let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. 
Hi, Ross. This is Russ, R-U-S-S. Hey, wasn't Excelsior what was used in that movie, The Bad Seed, to light the handyman on fire? <gasps> I think you're right. Yeah, that's what <laughs> God. That's right. That's how haunted me as a kid. For oh, reason. yeah, me too. I really, yeah. I mean, even today, I, I, it was on TV just recently. Like, ah, it's scared. You're right, it was. Uh, well, and why would Excelsior of... be used that way? Well, well it's wood. It's very flammable because it's very like yeah. it's it's tiny. It's tiny. It's sort of like wood wool. The Brits call it, and it's very flammable. It's it's tinder, really. It's terrible. Could I get yeah. right to my question though, please, Leonard? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm a big fan of pig leg Pete Stuyvesant and old Captain Ahab. Uh, I I wonder, does amputation always make people more bitter? Is it always a metaphor for lost humanity? Because I wonder, in the history of body parts, has amputation ever been confused with actual biology, or is the use of gender-obscuring language to corrupt our understanding unique in our history? Thanks a lot. Is it something you considered when you were writing your book? Hello? Not really, but it's an interesting concept, I've got to say. Hmm. Well, maybe that's something you'll address in the next book you write. <laughs> More body parts. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say, caller, before we go on to another call? Okay. Let's take another call again. The number 212-209-2877 if you want to speak to Kathy and Ross. WBAI, you're on the air. Hello? Is this me? Yes, you. The Tower of Babylon steroids. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what we've got with all this media and people on the Internet and who knows what anyone's talking about. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, relating to what you said Body parts, umbilicus. You know what that is? I'm sorry, I can't hear that. Hello? He, he wants to know if you know what umbilicus is. Well, umbilicus? is it the umbilical cord? Is that what you're talking well, about? Umbilicus. You mean umbilicus or umbilicus? Umbilicus, okay. Umbilicus. I know umbilicus, but I don't know umbilicus. Well, I'm well we're going to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what it is? No, go ahead. It's your belly button. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I thought that would be kind of, I always wondered why it was great. called the navel. Well, yeah, that's just it. I don't know how I got that, but umbilicus is what the technical word for belly button. And uh, Oh, I umbilicus. Umbilicus. Uh, umbilicus. Oh, yeah, yeah umbilicus, right, right. yes. Umbilicus. And I thought what? that would be like great in, in a, uh, like a sci-fi movie where it's like, where you you, you got to lift the guy's shirt to find out if he's an android because he doesn't. Have <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You've, yeah. you've got a screenwriting career ahead of you, I well, think. Well, the, <laughs> the heroes would be the Naval Academy. <laughs> oh, oh. But here's something that needs correcting in our language um, because I'm blind, and I say I say to people, I'm blind, but I'm not visually impaired because they all used to go together, blind and visually impaired. Visual is not the same as vision. That is to say, visual means relating to vision. You can go to the school for visual arts. That has nothing to do with eyes. Right. So, so when they say, when people say, are you visually impaired? I say, no, I'm very easy to see. Just look in my direction. 
I'm very easy. I'm not visually impaired. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I love that. You know, and but but I'm in a community where I always have to say this is for the blind and visually impaired, and then I think. How did that word get to be? The knuckleheads were at it for decades. The, who's mm-hmm. the first person who wrote down visually impaired? And who was the next person who said, sounds good to me? And there wasn't a person who said, grammatically, that's incorrect. You're uh, absolutely right. I never thought of that. You're absolutely yeah. right. Well, that's brilliant. Well, what happened was, <laughs> I was leaving a bank, and, and, the, and some guy there said, are you vision impaired? I said, why did you say that? He said, is it wrong? I said, no, it's right, but how did you know? He said, well, I'm from, he said, I'm from Brazil. That's how they say it in Brazil. That's also how they say it in England. But somehow in the United States, some knucklehead said visually impaired, and some illiterate person who didn't know their grammar wrote it down, and the next person said, good enough. Good yeah, right. That works. Okay. Move on. Right. Wow. Right. That's good a really enough, good point. School of thought. School of non-thought. Well, language keeps on changing. To some degree, I, I suspect it changes because people make mistakes and then that just becomes part of the language, no? But it can mm-hmm. be wrong. It can be It can be completely confusing. Mm-hmm. Like, like I say, um, I... It, they referred to. I heard. I heard this the other day on the news. They they referred to a certain tree that that grows in Southeast Asia and in Asia. You, that doesn't make any sense. It's a <laughs> place, so, you know, right. You know. And, so, and it's like so, that's like saying, "Do you want an orange or do you want fruit?" It's like category of things. Yes. So I want to slap their wrist and saying that that defies the logic of linguistics. You can't say. That tree grows in Southeast Asia and in Asia. Or what? Well, you already yeah. said it's in Asia. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's it's getting worse out there, isn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> if, if there's so many Southeast talk shows Asia on television. I see this all the time. People making those kinds of mistakes, and all the only thing I can do is yell at my TV screen. Mm-hmm. The people who get it right most often are the people talking about get this food mm. and there was a person was talking she said south asian central asian well because she, she had a cookbook she wrote a cookbook she couldn't afford to be good enough close enough she wanted yeah. to know she wanted to you make a delicious meal no good enough close enough when it comes to cooking mm. thank you so much for your call let's go to another call bai you're on the air no Oh, I thought we had some more calls coming in. I guess they hung up. Uh, again, our number is 212-209-2877. If you want to join this conversation, 212-209-2877. You've also put together a list of of, uh, of words and names that got mispronounced over the last year. Um, are we doing that more than usual? To some degree, yes, because we're we're getting much more multicultural and we have a lot. I mean, when we were kids, you basically had Anglo-Saxon names coming around everywhere and you kind of knew them. What's mm-hmm. happening now is we're getting new terms from overseas and we're getting new people, uh, different people from different backgrounds coming in. And it does create more mispronunciations. We've seen it ourselves all the time. Hmm. Well, my name in Russian was Lopata. But when it was spelled out 
Uh, not, not in Roman letters, L-O-P-A-T-E. People here started pronouncing it Lopate. My grandfather said, okay, so it's Lopate. <laughs> <I> sus- <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I suspect that, that's not an uncommon experience. That happened with us. Our, grand- our maternal grandparents were named Iliopolo. And uh, that was a handful or a mouthful mm. for the people at Ellis Island. So they changed it to Leopold. And um, they there it with- goes. Yeah. Okay. And actually, technically, I was baptized as Peridon Yorio Petras, uh-huh. which is not, which is sort of a pain to say too. So, <laughs> which is all... how it became Ross, yeah. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have uh, some calls coming in again. The number two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven, BAI. You're on the air. Yes. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Um, one good point regarding a, a previous uh, male caller is Google, and we have too many BAI hosts that when they mean search or search engine, they're making Google the next Kleenex. That's uh-huh. not good. You're um, absolutely right, because now everybody says, let's Google this. You yeah, don't hear anybody yeah, saying, let's so search this. Other, if I could just finish my point, there are so many other search engine, NPR, that uses underwriters, features one, uh, DuckDuckGo, and its privacy features. Uh, I I had a situation where I thought I was having a private conversation, and all of a sudden they were giving me nearby plumbers, okay? So they, uh, uh, and, and then the position that they've taken and the algorithm and helping the now the hard, hard right fascist Israeli government and it goes on and on. So I hope people who are listening to this will stop saying when they mean search or search engine, Google is a very, very bad idea. Thank you. Thank you. But when you're when you're just one thing, caller, when you uh, need to find some information do you go on your phone to search engine or do you go to Google? Oh, she's gone. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, unfortunately, we're kind of stuck with it, aren't we? The problem with a lot of those trademark terms is they just enter into the language and it's, you may like it or not, but they just stick. And I think and I, Google's going to stick with that. I think we're going to. I was going to say. I think in the case of Google, I don't think anyone's thinking really Google necessarily as much as searching at this mm-hmm. point. Ah, while picking up a Kleenex, putting a Band-Aid on your knee, it's the same principle. But the one thing is, we're stuck in time. But I mean, Kleenex is no, Kleenex is still around, but Xerox has disappeared. So one question would be, well, you know, maybe someone's going to invent some sort of sort of like, you know, some sort of AI searching and we're going to end up losing Google as a term. We have no idea. Language will change and it seems like it's stuck now, but it, it might change too. Well, that's why mm-hmm. we invite you as regular guests on our show. And I should <laughs> I should tell our audience that our guests are Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus, and we are discussing language with them. Earlier we discussed uh, their, uh, another book they've written, A History of the World Through Body Parts, but They've written a number of books on language that are published by 10 Speed Press. They also have a podcast called You're Saying It's Wrong. 
saying it wrong. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We are taking listener calls at 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Uh, Hi, Leonard. How are you? I am well. And you? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. I've been a long-time listener. Um, you were, before you guys were mentioning uh, Ex- Excelsior, mm-hmm. and I was thinking that Stan Lee used to say that in the comics all the time. Excelsior fans. Hmm. You're right. Like, yeah. And he was kind of funny. He would, like, pepper his comic books with certain certain phrases and stuff. Would Namor would say... Imperious Rex. And we were going like, what? Imperious yeah. Rex? What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, in what other situation would you hear Excelsior? Well, he was trying yeah, to educate no, us, true. wasn't he? Pardon me? Pardon. Was, wasn't he trying to educate us in a way? Yeah, in some ways. Cause, uh, a lot of people who write comics were pretty well, pretty had a pretty good uh, vocabulary. And they, you know, they got these words not from school, but from from uh, you know Fantastic Four and uh, all the other comics. I like that though. I think that's what. See, this is what I love about the world: that fact that you do get Excelsior from Stan Lee years ago. You know what I mean? I like yeah, that. Just, I approve. This sort of made me laugh. And I think we, earlier you were also saying something about copiers. I remember I was. I'm an illustrator, so I was doing a storyboard, and he said. Um, so we're going to do copies, uh, Xeroxes of these, right? And they go like, no, no, can't say Xeroxes. you got to say copies, you know, because the clients were so, like, they were so, they were so like, anxious to get that word out of our head. And it was embedded in our in It our, was. In our head. I mean, you couldn't say, oh, I need to make a copy. I need to make a Xerox, even though it wasn't a Xerox. It should be the other brand. They hated it. Oh, I'm sorry. I got to interject. I just looked up Stan Lee and Excelsior while you were talking. I'm sorry. I was so curious. I love this. So he wrote this. He said, I had a ton of expressions to end my columns with and found that the competition was always imitating and using them. So I told myself I was going to find an expression that they were not going to know what it meant or even how to write it. (laughs) That's where Excelsior came up. I love that. There you go. There you go. I'm so grateful that when he was a guest on my shows, he didn't do that to me. <laughs> well, you could have just said Nostrum or something to him. <laughs> well, that's funny. Well, this is pretty much all I wanted to say. But anyway, Leonard, I love you. I love your show. I'm a longtime parent from the old days to, to now. So take care. Okay, thank you so much for your call. Let's take another no, call. No, 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 nope, we lost that caller. Okay. Uh, again, the number 212-209-2877. Do you find in uh, all of the work that you do that there are words that you use, words that you think are just normal that other people don't understand? Definitely. Flens is one. <laughs> Cleans? We said it last time. We use flens. Flens like refers to stripping fat off of a whale, which is a pretty... <laughs> 
<laughs> which Ross and I do not do. Let me say no, right no. now. <laughs> we like the whales. Save the whales. Uh-huh. But we use it when we're writing to take. We we call it flensing, taking out crap from the writing, or it's like you know a bad big words, overly large words, sort of flapping on and on. Hmm. But we've used it when we've talked to we've been with editors, and we'll go like, yeah, Kath, I think you flens that, and uh-huh. we've had odd looks for people. <laughs> like, what? what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> There's no way on the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, we do have some more calls coming in, and uh, let's go to them. BAI, you're on the air. Uh, Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. Oh, okay. I just listened to uh, uh, Harari. Yuval Yuval Harari? Uh, Raw had an interview for writing something for children. Mm -hmm. Because what happened is, that it's already over the game, the name of the game. Because IBM in 1980, International Business Machine, then mm-hmm. you got Apple, that is an Apple Biden by Eve, and then uh-huh. you got Windows, <laughs> and then you got Windows, and my mother tell me, if anybody invites you to the house, and you have to come in through the window. Tell it no. You're not going to be so <laughs> Oh, that's priceless. <laughs> I can humor. I have three, three names for you guys. They are mm. honest liars. Biden, Donald Trump, Elon Musk. Now, I have one with ethics, and it was called Socrates. That's mm-hmm. why he dreamed. He drink the hemlock. And that's how Plato became the first hacker in the world. Because if Benjamin, he wrote everything that Socrates said, and he uh-huh. Benjamin, Benjamin, Socrates drink the hemlock. Because you know what the judge told Socrates. Socrates, uh-huh. how stupid could you be? You have the money to pay the penalty that you have to pay. The only thing is you cannot live here in the island of Greece. You have to go. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, no, give me the headlock. You want me to tell all the students, all my students, that I was lying to them? Mm-hmm. That's how Plato became the first hacker in the world. <laughs> because he used what Socrates said. And now the most, damaging, the most damaging hacker is Mr. Bill Gates. You know why? Uh-huh. He sent four different salesman Chinese to sell to China windows. And the fifth one told him they never going to be your slave. they ready to use Linux. Uh-huh. Either you give them the code or they will never going to buy Windows Call it. thank you uh-huh. so much. I, we, we're pretty much out of time. I want to sneak one more caller in. Uh, can you make it brief, thank you, caller? No. Oh, the caller is gone. Oh, is he still there? No. no. no? Oh, well. Um, so what are you going to be talking about on your podcast? You're saying it wrong. Well, we're going to basically go into jar into words that of um, how to how to go. We're okay, I'll, 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 um, we got an email from someone who was talking about academies and, and it got Ross and I, uh, Ross and me. Awesome. Into, yes. Yes, that's I hate that. I always panic with the me and the I. I still do. Uh, into bureaucraties. So, so we're doing a whole uh, thing about overbloated bloviation. 
We do have that caller back. We're going to make it very quick, aren't we, caller? Yes. Hello. Hi, this is Rose in New Jersey. Uh, one of my mother's favorite words was supercilious. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that connects with the, uh, the eyebrow area. What, did somebody have their hair up too tight? Or, <laughs> you know, it's an odd... Uh, Oh. Or did they pluck out too much of you know of their of their arch? <laughs> Super silly. I never quite get it. You know? Well, actually, it really it comes directly from the Latin. Cilium or killium in Latin would be pronounced as eyelid. Super mm-hmm. means above. So basically, you're like Kathy had said earlier. You're literally raising your eyebrow. You're going above the eyebrow. And when you you know obviously when you kind of raise your eyebrows, you're sort of contemptuous or. It's right. a it's a stern look. It's a disapproving yeah. like, oh, what are you doing? So it's it definitely is uh, it's straight straightforward on that one. Thank you so much for your call. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but my great thanks to Catherine and Ross Petrus. We've been talking about well a number of uh, topics. Uh, first, we opened with the discussion of some of the things in their wonderful new book called The History of the World Through Body Parts, the stories behind the organs, appendages, digits, and the like attached or detached from famous mm-hmm. bodies. And uh, we have been talking about language. As, well, that's from Chronicle Books. And we've been talking about language. They've written a number for 10 books on language for 10 Speed Press. And I look forward to your next visit. Well, we always love coming here. So you know that. And we're not supercilious about it. <laughs> but I want to know, remember what armpit was and the other word. I'm driving know, myself I crazy. <laughs> the other word for armpit? Ooh, yeah. It's oxter. O-X-T-E-R. Okay, I'm going to like throw that into my brain. Okay. All right. And uh, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of the show. Special thanks to our segment producer, Barbara Kahn, for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour shows, you can access our archive of over 700 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Right now, I have to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI because this station is going through a rather difficult economic time. And um, I've been preempted a couple of times because of the need for fundraising. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give in the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And as I mentioned earlier... Uh, you consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. If you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. And it's been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from WBAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. To get it, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 
or you can go to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Low Paid at Large as your favorite show. And I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listed donations. We don't take foundation grants or anything else or ads. Um, so don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, we thank you very much and hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when Daniel L. Hatcher will discuss his book, Injustice Incorporated. We'll see you then. 